Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to another episode of My Cousin Jane. Each week, we look at what you might think of as the behind-the-scenes featurettes or deleted scenes of a particular chapter in Jane Austen's books. And this week, we're going to talk about Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 6. So Chapter 6 jumps around a bit. We start with a brief blurb about the ladies of Longbourn visiting Netherfield and the ladies of Netherfield returning the visit. And then sometime after that, Charlotte and Elizabeth discuss how much Mr. Bingley and Jane like each other. And they debate whether or not Jane would be better off being more forward about her feelings towards Mr. Bingley. Charlotte's thoughts on matrimony here are a bit of foreshadowing of what is to later come with Mr. Collins. We then jump over to Lucas Lodge, where the Lucas family has invited a large party for an evening get-together. We also discover for the first time that Mr. Darcy is beginning to admire Elizabeth, much to his own surprise. It's also clear that Darcy is socially awkward, which people could certainly mistake as prideful behavior, And I'm not saying he isn't guilty of pride, but it's clear that he and his sister Georgiana, from things we later learn in the novel, uh, were raised in somewhat sheltered ways that make it difficult for them to converse easily with their peers. Now, the timing of this chapter is a bit difficult to nail down based solely on what we know from the book. We do know that at least two weeks have passed since the first time Mr. Bingley and Jane have danced together. Now, one of the things about Jane Austen's works is that there are phrases used in them that meant something specific in Regency-era England that, while the general meaning may be somewhat similar to what you think it means today, the actual meaning may have shifted quite a bit since that time period. Or sometimes it can have multiple meanings depending on context. And I want to discuss three such phrases that Austen uses in this chapter. First, let's listen to this clip of Elizabeth and Charlotte debating how well Jane knows Mr. Bingley. As always, our audio clips come courtesy of Karen Savage and LibriVox.org. She has known him only a fortnight. She danced four dances with him at Meryton. She saw him one morning at his own house, and has since dined with him in company four times. This is not quite enough to make her understand his character. Not as you represent it. Had she merely dined with him, she might only have discovered whether he had a good appetite. But you must remember that four evenings have also been spent together, and four evenings may do a great deal. Yes, these four evenings have enabled them to ascertain that they both like Vendôme better than commerce, but with respect to any other leading characteristic, I do not imagine that much has been unfolded. If you know some French, you might recognize that Vendôme or Vantillon is French for twenty-one. The game is called by its French name because it appears to have come to Britain from France in the late 1700s. There are a number of modern variations on the rules for this game. In the U.S., the most popular variation is called Blackjack, while in the United Kingdom, the most common variation today is known as Pontoon. The name Pontoon first appeared sometime during World War I. Card game historians believe that this name may have come from a mistransliteration of what some less educated infantrymen heard when an officer talked about playing Vanton. Some historians credit the game's origins to Spain, sometime in the 1600s, and this is because it appears in the short story collection written by Miguel Cervantes of Don Quixote fame. But according to David Parlett, author of A History of Card Games, the game is probably a derivation of 31, a game that was popular throughout Europe in the 15th century. 
Commerce, the other game Elizabeth refers to, is one of the many variations of poker that has been played over the years. Commerce itself has some variations as well, depending on where and when it was played. Turning again to David Parlett, author of A History of Card Games, Commerce is played by dealing a set number of cards face down to each player, and this was most commonly three in Regency-era England. Then the same number of cards is dealt face up in the center of the table. Players take turns deciding whether to exchange one or more of their cards for the ones in the center. What constitutes a good hand depends on the version of commerce being played, but most commonly, there, in order of precedence, a three of a kind, then a consecutive sequence of cards in the same suit, such as a four, five, six of spades or a jack, queen, king of diamonds, followed by a flush, three cards of the same suit in any order, then a pair, and finally a high card, sometimes called a point card. But again, historians point out that there are so many variations of poker and games similar to poker that go by the same name, it's really hard to know exactly the version that's being played. But the three-card version of commerce I just described is the most likely candidate for that time period. Later in Chapter 6, we're at Lucas Lodge, where Sir William Lucas has gathered a large party for an evening of socializing. Mr. Darcy's talking with Elizabeth and Charlotte, and Charlotte has just invited Elizabeth to play the pianoforte. Here's what Elizabeth says in reply. You are a very strange creature by way of a friend, always wanting me to play and sing before anybody and everybody. If my vanity had taken a musical turn, you would have been invaluable. But as it is, I would really rather not sit down before those who must be in the habit of hearing the very best performers. On Miss Lucas's persevering, however, she added, Very well, if it must be so, it must. And gravely glancing at Mr. Darcy, there is a fine old saying, which everybody here is of course familiar with, keep your breath to cool your porridge, and I shall keep mine to swell my song. I've always been curious just how old that fine old saying actually is. The phrase, keep your breath to cool your porridge, or sometimes save your breath to cool your porridge, appears relatively frequently in 18th and 19th century literature. So Pride and Prejudice was published in 1813. You can also find the phrase used in Sir Walter Scott's Old Mortality, published in 1841, Jonathan Swift's satirical etiquette book Polite Conversation, which was published in 1738, and in Captain Charles Johnson's 1736 book Lives of the Highwaymen, a famous book about many criminals and pirates, including Blackbeard. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, which maintains a really great list of word origins for the English language, states that the phrase first appeared in print in 1694, in the first English-language translation of a classic French story, The Life of Gargantua and Pantagruel. That's the story of a giant named Gargantua and his son Pantagruel, who travel around having adventures that are basically satirical social commentaries, very similar to Gulliver's Travels. In the English translation, a character named Panurge is having a conversation with a friar, and at one point he says to him, well, friar, spare your breath to cool your porridge. So thinking that this phrase was originally a French idiom, I tracked down the original French version of the book. Unfortunately, while the English translator Peter Anthony Motot did a great job with the English translation, he is a bit infamous in literary circles for having little concern with having added a great amount of his own material to the work. It turns out that the passage where Panurge says, spare your breath to cool your porridge, is one of the many places where he added his own material, because while the original French version does have a conversation with the friar, this particular bit of dialogue doesn't exist there. Still, 
we know that this phrase was at least known to the translator as early as 1694. So where did the phrase, in fact, originate? Going back just a bit further, there's one more use of it in 1646 that I could find by a British educator named John Clark. He published a collection of Latin idioms and their English language equivalents. One of the English idioms he uses is save your breath to cool your porridge. From his use of it, it's clear the phrase has an even earlier origin. Unfortunately, from there, the trail goes cold. All right, moving on to our last phrase. After Elizabeth finishes playing the pianoforte, his sister Mary takes over. Let's listen to what happens next. Mary had neither genius nor taste, and though vanity had given her application, it had given her likewise a pedantic air and conceited manner, which would have injured a higher degree of excellence than she had reached. Elizabeth, easy and unaffected, had been listened to with much more pleasure, though not playing half so well and Mary, at the end of a long concerto, was glad to purchase praise and gratitude by Scotch and Irish heirs, at the request of her younger sisters, who, with some of the Lucases and two or three officers, joined eagerly in dancing at one end of the room. I want to spend a minute or two talking about this phrase, Scotch and Irish heirs. The term heir, in music, sometimes means different things to different people, and even the generally accepted meaning differs slightly between genres of music and across time periods. In a very simplified definition that tries to capture all the meanings I could find, an air generally means a melody from a song, but what type of melody and what it's used for is where things get muddled a bit. According to the BBC Classical Music magazine, the Italian term aria is often translated as air in English, and generally means a solo vocal piece that can be extracted from an opera and performed on its own, but still in the operatic style. Probably one of the most well-known in this style is the aria from Act 3 of Rigoletto, La Donna Immobile, or A Woman is Fickle. La donna è mobile, qual fiume al vento, muta d'accento. Often an aria is performed so often on its own that it becomes more well-known than the opera it came from. For example, many people could probably recognize the aria Largo al Factotum, sung by Figaro from the Barber of Seville. Or the arias Abanera and Toriador song from Carmen, without ever having seen or been aware of the operas that those arias originate from. However, the term air in Regency era England could also refer to a song-like vocal composition such as air on the G-string, a special arrangement of part of a suite written by Bach, or one of the many airs that were popularized in France that were written primarily for the lute but were later adapted to other instruments. So that still leaves us a bit confused about which type of air Mary was playing. One additional clue is that in the various definitions of musical airs we've discussed so far, they explicitly mention that airs were not used for dance music, 
But according to Austin, that's exactly what Elizabeth's friends and family were using them for. Knowing that, and the fact that Mary's playing Scotch and Irish airs, points us in a different direction. According to The Companion to Irish Traditional Music by Vinton Valley, in traditional Gaelic music, the term air usually refers simply to the melody of a tune. So instead of saying, how does Jingle Bells go again? You would ask, what's the air to Jingle Bells? But it can sometimes be a synonym for an Irish slow air, which Valley defines as an open-ended melodic formula. Often a slow air will be simply the air of an existing song. The slow air is played solo, is executed differently on different instruments, and individual players' interpretations of it vary considerably too. There are lots of different styles of music that get labeled under the umbrella of traditional Irish music. And one of the ironic things is that a lot of these songs were composed to tell a story originally about different battles or rebellions or revolts that the Irish people had against English rule. So it's a little ironic that they would then take those songs and sing them in different English assemblies or play them for dance. So within those different subgenres, you have things like Shanos, which is a very distinctive vocal style. You also have Irish jigs, which were probably more inclined towards dance. Now here's an excerpt of a traditional Irish jig played by Barbara Ahrens on the piano, which is very similar to probably what Mary would have been playing. Well, that wraps up this episode of My Cousin Jane. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalen.com slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.